One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. Hi, I'm Danielle Moody, former educator and recovering lobbyist. But today I'm an unapologetic woke commentator on America's threats to democracy. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try and make sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Hello, and welcome to another Sunday bonus episode of The New Abnormal. We thank you so much for being here. Today, we have an extra special guest with Vanity Fair contributing editor Mo Ryan, who's going to talk all about her new book, Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood, and she'll give us Lots of dirt and details about your favorite TV shows and all the bad stuff that went on behind the scenes. But first, let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some clips? Clips. Yeah, clips. That's what I like to hear. Okay, so in this clip, we're going to hear another warrior against woke revealing that they can't say what they are really fighting against because they'll say the quiet part loud. Here we have a town hall one Nikki Haley did with an empty suit named Jake Tapper on (laughs) CNN. Ouch. Woke, the word woke, used to be used by progressives to talk about an awareness of inequities and historical inequities. But obviously it means something else to conservatives criticizing it. What does it mean to you? How do you define woke? There's a lot of things. I mean, you want to start with biological boys playing in girls' sports. That's one thing. The fact that we have gender pronoun classes in the military now. I mean, all of these things that are pushing what a small minority want on the majority of Americans, it's too much. It's too much. I mean, the yeah, it's too much to respect people. It's too much to <laughs> give them dignity. It's too much to call people by the name that they ask you to call them by. It's too much to train people into equity and inclusion. You're absolutely right. You fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to say, I don't even like what Jake Tapper said at the beginning of that. He said, you woke used to be used by progressives. It used to be used by black people. Thank you. Say it. I don't know why he said that. that. That's such a weird thing to me. I mean, you know, Haley's answer is that's par for the course at this point, because anytime you ask a conservative what woke means, they won't define it. They'll just hold up examples of things they don't like. And that becomes woke, whether it's a beer or sports or whatever. But Tapper, come on, man. I thought Congresswoman Cori Bush did an amazing job this week on the floor of Congress saying that we all know what this really is. It's racism. Yeah. Like anytime you hear the word woke, replace it with civil rights because that's really what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, to go to a horrible place, as usual, in the competition to be the craziest congressperson, there's many people who would have taken the cake in previous congressional classes. But Repa Anna Paulina Luna 
is not quite in shape enough to run against the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, but she's given it an honest try here. Here she's going to talk about FBI director Chris Ray. Trafficking taking place. So they are essentially acting um, as a arm of the Biden administration. And so, I mean, all I can say is a lot of people are frustrated. We're frustrated, but we're going to be holding them accountable. And th this is potentially going to be a criminal charge if this guy doesn't pony up it's very possible that the director of the FBI could end up in jail. I don't know how she defines very possible, but I don't think it's the dictionary definition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to bet everything I have, which is at least $90 worth of stuff, <laughs> that Chris Ray will not be going to jail anytime soon. Are you sure? Because if you, you know, if you wish it, just like Donald Trump can declassify <laughs> documents with his mind as if he's an X-Men, are you sure they can't make it happen if they all do a fucking seance together? They can't because the Biden crime family will stop. Oh, them. you're right. Oh, good. good. good, good. Yes. Hunter's going to come in and save the day, just like Barron's going to be our future leader and uh, Steve Bannon is just <laughs> right. him coming back in time to uh, ward his future self so Barron could be a great leader as the QAnon think these days i will say there's a bet i think there's a better chance of hunter biden going to jail than chris ray i would definitely agree with that well the stupid keeps on going south dakota governor christy gnome who is my dark horse candidate for who trump will put on his ticket as veep is here uttering the world's stupidest talking point which is one of the reasons i have my money on her being picked because that's basically the qualification Let's listen. Yeah, I'm like a lot of Americans. Love to shop at Target. I mean, we do, but we just can't yeah. anymore. And while the rest of the country is worried about, you know, having fun and going out and shopping and enjoying a store, that store is fundamentally tearing down this country. And we have to have real conversations about how serious we are about protecting our freedom. Sure, absolutely. Target's having a bad month, just saying. They are. So, Governor, you're there in it's South... deserved you Target, a display <laughs> of rainbow paraphernalia is tearing down the country we have to have a conversation about freedom and i thought that that's what happened when you had private companies that weren't government run right that they have the freedom to make decisions about who they're selling to and where they're selling am, am i wrong about that did i make that up yes no, you made that up. Okay. Republicans have never been in favor of the free market. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what put that in your head that the Republicans were the party of the free market because clearly they have never been. <laughs> so I don't know. Jesse, I kind of don't disagree with you. I think she has a decent chance of being Trump's VIP pick. She's do doing the right call here, which is like she's just kind of playing it safe, just saying the stupid talking points that make you qualified for it. You got Nikki Haley out there just bungling policy all day, thinking if she gets in front of the camera enough, he'll pick her. Marjorie, re really not winning uh, the uh, race these days. And then, you know. And then there's Christy. Yeah, just, just there. I mean, her hair, it's just, you know. Well, that's the thing. Like, she it's, has it's the like, look. Like, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's that Trump woman look. Yeah. It really is, it yeah. is striking. Yep. Uh, well, uh, don't look forward to that, but uh, <laughs> hell awaits us all, I guess. <laughs> okay. So over on the clown car that is called Newsmax, a quote-unquote comedian named Chrissy Mayer had some more great insight into the culture war. Here she is with Newsmax host Eric Bowling. It's pretty ridiculous uh, to to just assume that Chick-fil-A, I mean, 
you know, I'm hesitant to make a fried chicken joke, but they sell fried chicken. I don't know how much more inclusive we can get here. Okay, so here's my maybe weird take on this joke. It's not a good joke, but that's a separate question. If the question is, should she have said it? The answer to should she have said it on a news program is no. If you want to make a joke like that in a comedy club, I mean, yeah, you can do it. And I think you can get away with it. Again, I don't think it's a very good joke. But there's things you can do with body language and, you know, with facial expressions to make it clear that, you know, you're making a joke, but you it's not, you know, you're not racist or anything like that. It's just a dumb joke. But I think a lot of the problems that these comedians have is they don't understand that there's a difference when you're on a TV show and they just they just don't get that. I don't know. I, I know this is a weird take, maybe, and maybe it's because I did red eye the news comedy show for so long but but that's sort of how i feel about it like make that joke in a comedy club if you want and again i think you could probably get away with it it's mostly harmless it's it's just not a very good joke but don't say that on a news program it's just stupid it's dumb it's racist it doesn't belong anywhere in my humble opinion i mean i suppose you can do it in a comedy club and I wish that I could just laugh at Fox and other outlets because right. they're ridiculous and dumb, except for the fact that tens of millions of people listen to this on a regular basis. So it was it, she should be embarrassed. But, you know, you can't embarrass people that have no shame. To be fair, this is Newsmax. So oh, it's, ten, sorry. it's tens of people. <laughs> oh, it's tens, tens of, of people. people. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I was more just thinking through the whole thing. Like, Eric Bowling has got to be upset that Apple's new operating system that comes out later is going to hide explicit pictures that you receive. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or I prefer Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. 
knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter, I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Last week, Vanity Fair ran an excerpt from my next guest's new book on Hollywood from a chapter about the equal parts heartbreaking and horrifying experiences of people of color and women who worked on the TV show Lost. It left many people's jaws dropped, including mine. Well, now that book entitled Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood is out, and it is an essential look at the history of this kind of treatment that has been faced by pretty much anyone who's not a white man in Hollywood. Vanity Fair contributing editor Maureen Ryan joins me now. Mo, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. I'm going to start off by saying that there's simply too much in the book to cover in a 25-minute interview, so please excuse me for skipping over a lot of stuff. A lot of my material ended up on the cutting room floor. People are saying, when's the sequel? And I'm like, I actually, I had to cut things out despite how long it is. Yeah. Wow. I want to combine the opening of the book, which deals with people like producer Scott Rudin, things like the existence of the utterly reprehensible treatment of assistants, and the questions of who exactly is allowed the freedom to be an asshole in Hollywood. I want to combine that with what you talk about later as the toxic myths around creativity. And this is, of course, the ridiculous belief that if you're artistic, you have to be an asshole or that it's okay to be an asshole. Mm -hmm. The whole idea that artists suffer, you know, artists have an artistic temperament and it's, it involves suffering and so forth. I mean, we have it from, you know, La Boheme onward. It's not new, but I think Hollywood kind of weaponized it in a very terrifying way for years. Yeah, absolutely. And it's unreal how much straight up awful and borderline, if not full on pathological behavior has been excused and tolerated and almost sort of sought after in Hollywood over the decades. And I'd like to say it was shocking that the vast majority of the people you talk about in these sections are white dudes and that the people pushing back at them are not. But I can't even say that was shocking. Yeah. And just to be clear, for the Lost chapter and other chapters, some of my sources were white dudes. You know, I mean, I've been on the phone with people who were, you know, in or near tears many times because of, you know, what they witnessed what they saw being done to colleagues, the toxic dynamics that happened over and over again in their workplaces. And, you know, I'll never forget one person pulling over to the side of the road, a white guy just trying to talk about his own complicity. And, and what I often say, or, or you know, what, what should I have done differently? You know, sometimes when you're witnessing an abusive thing, you do not know what to do. And I think that that's very human. You know, obviously, these people usually go forward and try to make the industry better. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, you know what? Honestly, I think there's a good chance you would have committed career suicide had you been the one to, you know, scream back at that person on behalf of a colleague in that moment, you know, or defend someone. People do it, and I'm glad that they do it. But I think there's a set of hurdles for everyone. 
you know, you know the industry, you know how hard it is. Unless the studio head is your dad, and those people exist too, we have right. to have, you know, studio children representation in this conversation. <laughs> For most people, it is rough. It's rough to put yourself out there and just want to tell a story. And, you know, if you put words or a story or anything into the world, someone's going to judge you for it. So, I mean, let's just acknowledge that is a little scary or a lot scary, but some people have even more hurdles. You know, just the other day, the book's only been out for three days. And on Twitter, a series of Latino writers were talking about just frankly, straight up racist things that have been said to them in pitch meetings, including one comment of like, shouldn't the character be an unwed mother? Because aren't most women from that community out of wedlock mothers? And I like, what do you even say in that moment? What, like oh you're, you're pitching your passion project and you, you know, you've planned it out and you've worked so hard on it. And it just like freezes people in the moment. So look, I don't think that people you know, get up in the morning, you know, with rubbing their hands together and twirling their mustaches and saying, I'd like to commit verbal or physical violence on people. But it just happens a lot because what creativity is, it is hard. And what I want to make clear to your listeners is that I hope that people with a lot of baggage continue to make art because that's my thing. You know, explore the baggage, process all your neuroses through your art. Go for it. I want that. I don't want storytelling on screens that is, you know, antiseptic and basically the Care Bears picnic, you know, right. although like, no shade to the Care Bears. <laughs> we have to have Care Bear representation on this podcast too. Right. We're, we're, we're really covering all the bases here. Absolutely. So, no, but like, it's fine to have baggage. What Hollywood said was, we don't want to spend a lot on training, management, and putting limits on people's behavior. So what we'll do is we will reinforce this idea that creativity allows for, from the people with power, status, connections, money, or some combination of those things, from those people, whoever they are, they get to do what they want or more or less do what they want. And if something bad happens and things go very, very awry as, you know, if you've paid any attention to Hollywood news, even before Me Too, but certainly after, a lot goes wrong. We will sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. And I do not think that that is, I mean, it leads to terrible situations for human beings and that's the primary concern. But it also, I think, kind of leads to bad art, you know? Really, it haunts me, many things that people tell me, but one of them is a film school graduate uh, had some experience in LA in the industry, did some jobs, then came east to work in New York in the 90s. And she said the two shops that you had as your options if you wanted to work in movies in New York in the 90s were Scott Rudin's shop and the Weinstein Company. And so, you know, imagine you love cinema. You you will you'll work so hard to put good stories or interesting or creatively successful stories into the world and your choice is abuser A or abuser B, you know, like those are your options. And that's strikes me as horrifying. Yeah, beyond horrifying. So let's talk about Lost, which I will say right off the bat, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. There are some days I might say it was my favorite TV show of all time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote a song about it back in the day. Absolutely. As I noted at the top, this chapter of the book was excerpted in Vanity Fair a week or so ago and made a pretty big splash for obvious reasons. It was unbelievable. Not in the sense that you couldn't believe it, but in the saying holy shit as you're reading it since. It was just example after example of abusive behavior towards writers of colors, towards actors of color, towards women writers. You say, as you put it in the book, 
in the full chapter, which also weaves in historical antecedents for this type of behavior, that the people you spoke to who told you of, of their experiences were of all races and genders, but, you know, half were people of color and more than half were women. So let's start with the actors and I guess particularly the shabby treatment of Harold Perrineau, who played Michael. You know, when you are a viewer, and I really came up more as a critic, you know, I was actually a music critic first. And if anything, the music industry is worse. So that's exciting to think about. Yes. <laughs> you don't always know. And if you're a professional critic, in some ways, maybe you shouldn't know. Like, you just want to look at what's on the screen. But you see these things play out and you're like, well, that's weird. You know, Harold Perrineau was a key part of the ensemble. He seemed to have a key role in the, the narrative or in how it was being set up. The premise, if you will, he's this father stuck on this island. You know, he and his kid, you know, were trying to kind of reestablish and rebuild their relationship. So that's, you know, it's, it's an interesting setup. And Harold Perrineau is a wonderful actor. Why was he gone? He was more or less gone after the end of season two and came back in season four for some episodes. But right. What I learned was, you know, it just it shocked me to my core. And I learned that. And then I spoke to a writer called Monica Owusu-Breen. These stories take years. I've known people who've worked on Lost for years. And I will also say freely, because your readers might go poking around, some creative partners and I did a commemorative podcast on Lost in 2019. And, you know, I'd heard it, it was a tough environment. But even post Me Too, I wasn't sure what that meant. I didn't have specifics. So I'll, I'll, I mean, I'm not trying to defend myself. Sure. I didn't know what I then later found out. And it took people years to trust me, to trust anyone, understandably, because I think really that Lost chapter came out because next year Lost's premiere will be 20 years old. So it took that long for people to build up their careers to the point where they felt like they could be truthful about what happened. And that's, you know, that's a scary fact in and of itself. I haven't looked at every single clip I ever wrote about loss, but I do think that the fact that it had a, an inclusive cast, that was great. You know, I, I go to something called the TCA Press Tour, the Television Critic Association, and that's held twice a year or was pre-pandemic. And basically what happens for a lot of it is that the producers and creator of a show would come out on stage often surrounded by the cast. And what it would also often be was, you know, like six white people in the creative or producer positions, you know, seven cast members. And one of them was a person of color. If that, if that, right. And lost wasn't like that. So yes, it did break with the norms of the time, but it's incredible to me to this day. And I'm going to say something that I didn't put in the book because I thought, it, you know, there was so much serious stuff being said by people and so many painful revelations. I didn't want to come off as seeming petty, but just even on a story level, I didn't understand it. I still don't understand the following. This is an island that hopscotched through time and it was tropical and had a polar bear on it. So you couldn't figure out a way for I know where you're going. Harold Perrineau's son to be out of the show. But Harold Perrineau's character, Michael, couldn't stick around. I don't like, like, I get, I get the creative problems are hard to solve, but I'm like, this is an island in which quite literally the most wackadoodle things that had been seen on television, <laughs> some of the most right. wacky things that had ever been seen on television happened. In the very first episodes, a man who had been in a wheelchair began walking around and they told you why that happened. I just want to jump in and explain to, to our listeners oh, yeah. who don't know Lost. The story has always been that Harold Perrineau, who played Michael, was let go from the show because the actor who played Walt, his son, had a huge growth spurt. Right. And they couldn't explain that on the show, so they kind of wrote them both off the show. Exactly. And I just, you know, talking to Harold, 
it was just, it was just shattering because, you know, he's such a good actor and what my career has been full of in the last 10 years, especially has been hearing from people that had to depart a job, put it that way, or were fired from a job or were endured some kind of punitive or vindictive behavior, not because they were bad at what they did, not because they didn't know how to do their job, not because they themselves were you know, abusive or unprofessional, but for some extraneous reason. And that's really distressing to me. You know, it's really distressing to me that writers at loss, writers of color in particular, and also some white writers either were let go or felt the need to leave because the environment was really punishing. And there was, as at many shows, there has just been basically the imprimatur from the television industry was, we'll give you a budget and you'll have to answer to our notes. But in many other matters, you are free to use your power how you want, and we will pretend it's not happening, you know? And so whatever's happening is not happening. So that led to really kind of like a royal prerogative, if you will. One or two people, or maybe three people, maybe the star is also powerful. They would have a massive amount of power, and everyone else didn't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just want to make it clear that in the book, what we learn is that Harold Perrineau was pretty much let go for reasons that didn't seem to not have to do with race. Everyone's side is presented. You know, I asked the show and yes. Sam and Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. They gave their side. Their explanations revolved around the growth spurt of the young actor who played Harold Perrineau's son. And all I can do is present various people's explanations. They were allowed to present their explanation. And Harold Perrineau was doing a good job on a show that was very grueling. And then he said to me, I feel like I just got fired. I understood why he felt that way. And you know what? Yeah. The next season he wasn't on the show. So like, I don't know what to tell you. Like that's, right. <laughs> that was a job that he was not doing anymore. And it was a grueling taxing job. And that's another thing too, that we have to weave into this. If someone feels overwhelmed by the responsibilities that they're given and unable to meet the moment and meet the challenge of controlling a film set with 500 people working on it or controlling a television production with between pre-production, post-production, and active production, you know, like filming, hundreds more people are involved. That is a very, very big job. And I certainly know that if you put me in that chair tomorrow, I would probably screw up. Right. So a big theme in my book, too, is not just this was a disaster and it wasn't all that long ago, which was also the case with Sleepy Hollow, another show that, you know, was more of a cult thing, but very much talks about the dynamics that, you know, were to some degree present in the lost chapter, not all that long ago. And, you know, it's not okay to treat, whether it's actors, writers, personnel on a, uh, you know, working in, you know, networks, studios, or on set, it's not, an, it's not okay to treat them as interchangeable. It is not okay to make the working conditions, basically have the following rule in place. If you speak up to anyone powerful, you could end your career tomorrow. Right. That's just not a healthy work environment. I don't care if it's a pizza parlor or if it's a big tentpole movie. If the reigning philosophy is there are people who will use and misuse their power in any way and no one can call them to account and you cannot speak up or else you will face serious consequences and possibly threats to your livelihood and your mental health and even your physical health, that is unhealthy. And I'm really tired of living with the fiction that, oh, well, 
what are you going to do? This is how creative people operate. You know, there's one showrunner at CBS who I did multiple stories on. The vibe I got from the back channels of people who would talk to me there, well, we couldn't do anything while Les, was, Les Moonves, who has been accused, you know, there have been allegations, many allegations reported by Ronan Farrow and others about heinous things that Les Moonves, the head of CBS, allegedly did. Oh, well, we couldn't fire anyone like that while Les was still around. What makes my head explode is people present these things as inevitable. No, you could have done something. Everyone involved with power chose not to. Absolutely. Look, there were some truly awful stories from the Lost writers and the way they described how the writer's room was run by Lindelof and Cues. And one of the reasons this chapter was so heartbreaking to read is that Lindelof, at least, has always seemed like sort of a menschy guy. I've heard not so nice things about Q's outside of your book, but I'd never heard anything particularly bad about Lindelof. You contacted both of them to tell you what you were reporting. What were their responses? Well, you know, they differed. I think that the part where they overlapped was them saying that they did not recall the remarks that I said to them. And they did their explanation about Harold. You know, I go into depth about that. And they they had an explanation that to them revolved around like creative decisions or, you know, problems with the story. So they had to cut off certain stories. The difference is that I spoke to Damon Lindelof. You know, we spoke a couple of times. And Carlton Cuse communicated to me through various representatives. Right. Here's something that I've encountered a lot in my career. People may not remember certain specifics. As I reported in, in that chapter, my contention is not that they were in the room for every heinous, offensive, or unprofessional thing that was said or done. I do think multiple people told me that as showrunners, as dual people responsible for the show and with the power of the show, many people use the word vindictive. They were the ones that were responsible for that work atmosphere. And, you know, you know how it is. I was lucky enough to speak to some of the sources after it came out. And, you know, what you get nervous about as a journalist is like, did I reflect the part of the situation that I was concerned with, with a degree of thoroughness that the sources think is reasonably fair. Right. It's not like, oh gosh, I have to answer to my editor and we all answer to people. I felt like I did that, but it was heartening to hear from people and think, yes, this was an accurate reflection of my experiences as pertains to the topics you wanted to bring up in the book. And one person said to me recently, and I won't name who it is because I, you know, I, I think that I think more than one person would say this, given the opportunity. If one of them had walked into the writer's room and said, we're not going to say things like X, Y, and Z, and we are going to treat each other. If one of them had given the speech that the average kindergarten teacher gives, you know, we are going to not use our words to attack people and make them feel diminished and demeaned. We're not going to bully people anymore. This source said that would have happened in a heartbeat. It would have just Kaboom. Because like, yeah. again, they had the power. And that's really the part that I'm trying to explode here. And that's been the consistent thing throughout Hollywood's history, whether it's a mogul but like Louis B. Mayer or there's just the people or, you know, the, the latter day moguls whose behavior now in many cases we are just horrified by. They have the power to hire and fire and make and break people's careers. And look, I understand part of that. If you watch the dailies for a film you're making and it's a $100 million film and that actor isn't working out and their performance is terrible and maybe they're showing up in a, let's say, less than good physical or mental condition, get them help and maybe, you know, pay out their contract and get a new actor in. Like, I I understand that sometimes things don't work out. Creative alliances or, or cooperation or collaborations don't work out. That's okay. But 
what we're talking about is the ability to end people's dreams and careers for reasons that have much more to do with ego and toxicity and bullying. And frankly, I follow the stats on Hollywood too. And here's a scenario I'll give. I did one chapter called The Myth of the Meritocracy, and I hope it's not overwhelming with numbers, but there's a lot of numbers that back up the assertions that I make. One high-profile annual study looks at the top 100 movies, and it's from USC. It comes out every year. And then they did kind of a, a meta study, and instead of the 1,600 films that we've talked about in 1,600 years, 21 of them were directed by Black women. And wow. overall... Women in power positions on those films went from 17% 25 years ago to 24% last year. Here's the thing. This is what I try to convey to executives sometimes when I'm just having an off-the-record conversation with them. I do think people are trying, but with a goodly number of people trying, the number only nudged up 7% in 25 years. So that tells you something. The number of People in writer's room, the percentage on people of color in writer's room, as long as I've covered the industry, it's hovered at around 10%. And what that amounts to is tokenism. You know, well, we have one person who isn't white, you know, and like, and so that tokenism is isolating. It can be really hard. So I follow the stats too, and, and the stats just show you there are stats that go up sometimes. But overall, the forces working against change in Hollywood are incredibly powerful, but they're really good at spin and hype and PR. So you just don't see how these powerful forces operate. And one of the ways in which they operate is to enforce norms that are not normal. And people just peace out and say, I would rather do anything else because I cannot take this mental state or these constant threats to my well-being in my career. You know, that's a very real thing that I encounter all the time. Yeah. And, it, you know, we're pretty much out of time. But, you know, as you point out over and over in the book, this is self-harming because you're talking about what you just mentioned. You're talking about all this potential talent leaving the industry and deciding that nothing is worth this treatment. And they're not wrong about that. They're not. But it's so frustrating because you realize that so many of these people probably had amazing stories to tell and they'll never get that chance. Right. And so Hollywood loses out on these amazing stories. We lose out as consumers and as watchers. We lose out on seeing these tremendous stories. It's just everybody loses and they, for some reason, cannot get that through their thick skull. But the good news is, is that these executives who make these decisions and at the, at the top of all these pyramids are making between 50 and 100, you know, $200 million a year. Yes. Thank God. That's the upside. I want to leave your viewers, on, you know, listen, yes. your listeners on a happy note. But yes. no, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm really glad that you made that point. And I really do want to stress that very strongly before we have to wrap up. Yes, certain people from certain communities face even more hurdles. But I'm telling you, you're absolutely right. Some of the people that get eliminated from the industry whatever walk of life, whatever culture and community they're part of, what we're doing is eliminating the people who have really good intentions about how they're going to treat other human beings and can tell good stories. And if we're sifting them out of the mix, that's a problem. You know, why are we sifting for abusers or potential abusers and then telling potential abusers, go for it. If you've made us a lot of money at the box office, you can now do whatever you want. That is slowly changing but I will just leave you with this tidbit. My, my husband works in the banking industry, in tech, not like he's not a banker. And, you know, he works 
alongside Banker sometimes, but I tell him the stuff about Hollywood that I hear about, and he he just says that would never fly. You know, banking is very square. His particular corner of it is very square. You know, Hollywood portrays itself as being this enlightened place where collaboration and artistic freedom and, you know, personal autonomy are, are valued. And I sit there and I tell my husband who's, you know, working in tech at a bank, and he's like, no, no one is allowed to do that where I work. <laughs> and so yeah. that's like my reality check. And thank goodness for that. <laughs> well, sometimes there are authors I could talk to for an hour, and this is one of those times, but unfortunately I can't. The book is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. It's out now, and I suspect it will be required reading in Hollywood and elsewhere. Maureen Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. This podcast is a Daily Beast production with production by Jesse Cannon and Seamus Calder.